Welcome to The Cauldron, a podcast hosted by Ed Bolton Greer, the creator of Ravensvale. In each episode, Ed will have free-flowing conversations about horror, life, culture, and personal growth. Expect to hear from storytellers, authors, horror experts, life gurus, thought leaders, and influencers. The Cauldron is a place where concoctions of a lot of ideas are brewed down to potions that are sometimes important and useful, sometimes eccentric and bizarre, but always just what you need. The Cauldron podcast may contain explicit language and thematic elements not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hey there, family. Welcome to the Ravensville Cauldron. I'm your host, Ed Bolding Greer, and I'm joined today by my guest co-host, Jacob Garner. Hello, hello, everyone. This is the third episode of our six-part series, Jacob's Haunting. In this series, we're researching five of the darkest urban legends of Appalachia. And if you're just now joining us, my good friend Jacob here suffers from phasmophobia. Yep. <laughs> phasmophobia specifically refers to an intense abnormal fear of ghosts. But the word is also commonly used to describe an individual that has an intense and prodigious fear of the supernatural and paranormal. Check, check, and check. Uh, I, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I think Webster's Dictionary just uses a picture of Jacob <laughs> in its uh, definition. Well, Jacob, today we venture into the heart of Appalachia, to the enigmatic Brown Mountains of North Carolina, where we're going to delve into the history and mystery surrounding the perplexing Brown Mountain Lights. These ghostly illuminations were first documented in 1910, and despite numerous investigations, the origins of these lights still remain a mystery a century later. In our last episode, you said you hadn't heard of the Brown Mountain lights before, uh, and I believe you said the lights scared you more than the Bell Witch. Yeah, yeah, there's something just really kind of uncomfortable and unsettling about orbs of light dancing around in the dark woods and especially after hearing the accounts of some of them chasing people. I don't want to be chased by an orb of light. I can understand that, Jacob. Well, Jacob, before we get started, how has 2024 been treating you so far? Oh, it's been wonderful. Spent the holidays with my family. Got to enjoy a bunch of delicious food and great company. Even uh, did the typical like Filipino celebrations. You'd probably get a kick out of it because it involves spirits. So what are some of the Filipino traditions surrounding New Year's? I mean, it's pretty pretty across the board, like what you expect with a lot of other cultures. You eat round food to signify money. You ah. got to wear polka dots or some weird article of clothing. But one thing that I've done since I was a child uh, that my family has always done is Around midnight, five minutes prior, everybody is given a noisemaker, uh, balloons to pop, or literally a pot and pan to bang together. And as the countdown begins, the host of the house opens up every forward-facing door and front window. And at midnight, everybody's supposed to make as much noise as humanly possible. And it's supposed to scare out all of the bad spirits in the house. So that way you start the new year with a clean slate. Everybody's happy and healthy. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. It also sounds like a bunch of fun. Oh, man. It's a blast. And as a kid, you don't really understand what you're doing. But as I've gotten older, I, I definitely make a little bit more noise than normal. <laughs> um, I guess you're really trying to scare those spirits out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, have you made any New Year's resolutions this year? I only really have one. I, I want to do at least two more MMA fights before I kind of stop doing it, uh, at least trying to compete with it. I definitely had planned to do two more last year before I got injured, but thanks to being in close proximity to you, Dr. B, I recovered pretty quickly. So <laughs> appreciate that. You are welcome. Yeah, so basically that's what I have planned for 2024. What about you, Ed? Um, well, I usually make a, a few resolutions each year, but to be honest, uh, this year I've really been just focused on one. Um when I look back over the past year and really my entire life, even with all the hardships and challenges that we faced in 2023, I have to say I'm pretty blessed. So I think my singular resolution for 2024 is, well, it's really twofold. In uh, 2024, I want to cultivate within myself a deeper sense of gratitude and I want to actively give back to the community. Sounds just like you. Hello, family. Today, we're taking a moment to talk about a very important issue that affects millions of people worldwide. Human trafficking and slavery. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, a time where we raise awareness about these heinous crimes and work together to prevent them. Human trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery where people are exploited through force, fraud, or coercion for various forms of labor or commercial sex trade. It's a global problem that does not discriminate. It affects men, women, and children of all ages and backgrounds. But together, we can make a difference. We can educate ourselves and others about the signs of human trafficking. We can support organizations that are working tirelessly to rescue victims and prosecute offenders. We can advocate for stronger laws and regulations to protect victims and prevent these crimes. And most importantly, we can spread the word and raise awareness. This month, let's stand together against human trafficking and slavery. Let's be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Remember, your actions matter. You have the power to make a difference. Together, we can end human trafficking and slavery. Now, family, before we take a deep dive into the Brown Mountain Lights, I want to remind everyone that next week's episode continues our Jacob's Haunting series with an episode about the Moon-Eyed People of Appalachia. Join us next week and find out who the Moon-Eyed People were and where they came from and what happened to them. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, we promise you a journey today to the Brown Mountains of North Carolina, where we're going to look at the history and mystery, and maybe a little dash of the unexplained, as we try to uncover the truth about those strange orbs called the Brown Mountain Lights. So, Jacob, did you do your homework? Oh, most certainly. Well, let's hear what you found out. All right. So, the Brown Mountain Lights are a phenomenon observed in the Brown Mountain region near Morganton County, North Carolina. These mysterious lights appear as glowing orbs or spheres and are typically seen hovering above the horizon or moving through the air. The lights are often described in a couple of different colors, the most common one being white or yellow, but it's also been reported to see red or blue. Numerous sightings of the Brown Mountain Lights have been reported over the years, and they've become the subject of various theories and legends of which I will expound on. Later on in the episode, some people attribute the lights to the supernatural or extraterrestrial origins. 
Those are the most fun ones. While others suggest more scientific explanations, such as gases emitted from the ground, reflections, and even just like car headlights in the distance, but I don't really believe that. Several viewing areas and overlooks have been established for visitors traveling through the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina for you to try to take your chance at seeing some of the Brown Mountain Lights. If you're anywhere near the Blue Ridge Parkway, mile marker 310 or 301, they have these little pull-off areas that are available for you to get out and get the binoculars and see if you can see anything cool. And while the phenomenon remains unexplained, it continues to attract the curiosity of locals, tourists, scientists, podcasters alike. (laughs) Scientists and researchers have conducted a bunch of investigations, but the exact cause of these lights remain uncertain, and they continue to be a huge draw to the area. So, Jacob, don't you think that if there was a natural phenomenon happening that uh, scientists would have already explained it? Well, they attempt to. Um, Appalachia State University conducts quite a few uh, studies and research into this, some as early as 2012, actually. Okay. And while there are some scientific explanations, they're more like guesses. They're throwing things against the wall and so seeing just some theories. Just some theories, and they're really pretty ranging in what they come up with. But uh, the history of the Brown Mountain Lights date back well over 100 years. And the phenomenon has been a subject of fascination and speculation for literally anybody that lives in Appalachia near this area. Uh, I'll just go over a brief overview of some of the early accounts, a little bit of a timeline, and I'll break it down a little bit more later. But the early accounts in the early 20th century, around 1906 to 1910, this is when we first started seeing documented accounts of the lights. Okay, Reports of the mysterious lights appearing over Brown Mountain were made by the early settlers in the area, and these sightings were often passed through the generations through oral tradition. One thing that's very important to highlight about this area, you read it and you're like, 19th century, or the 20th century, that's like 1906, 1910. What are they talking about settlers? For people that aren't familiar with Appalachia, it is incredibly remote, especially near these mountains. There is just not the ability to build huge settlements, large cities with a bunch of streetlights and huge roads and interstates and highways. These are very isolated communities that exist in this area. So when you see these sort of things, it it defies the explanation like, well, maybe it's somebody with a a toy or something, or maybe a drone, or maybe it's just some runaway kite with a candle attached to it. There's some really weird things going on. And then it actually attracts the attention of the scientific community. So starting in the 1920s through the 60s, and then obviously later on into the decades with App State and the U.S. government, scientific interest in the Brown Mountain Lights begin to grow. It stops being something that's just kind of like a tourist attraction. Come check this out. A lot of intelligent, powerful people are like, what's going on over here? There were a bunch of explanations that were proposed, including the possibilities of minerals in the mountain emitting phosphorescent light. However, no conclusive yeah. evidence. Yeah, I, I don't believe that one either. Because even if that was true, would it be like a boulder that then rolls, causing it to move? Right. And and I think they, they would have found those minerals by now. Oh, easily. Oh, yeah. But something I thought was really interesting was that during World War II, 
the U.S. government conducted a scientific investigation into the lights because they listed it as a potential threat. They suspected them of being enemy aircraft spying on American settlements out in Appalachia. The conclusion was inconclusive, which is interesting. Inconclusive. Yeah, you had hmm. the entire U.S. military machine looking into these lights, especially to figure out if they were enemy aircraft. They couldn't come up with an explanation for it, though, which is kind of yeah. creepy. Kind of creepy. And then into the late 20th century, the Brown Mountain Lights gained more widespread attention. The lights became the focus of local legends and stories, attracting tourists and researchers alike. This is when you really start to see a lot more accounts in newspapers, travel blogs, once the internet gets kind of moving along, as well as uh, old TV stations reporting on it as well. So the scientific studies that start to happen in about the... 80s, if you don't count the uh, U.S. government's military investigation of it, around the 80s are when the real scientific studies start to happen, and they're continuing to this day. They're all just searching to determine the cause of the lights. Some have proposed some kind of out there explanations when it comes to natural sciences, including the combustions of gases emitted from the mountain. Uh, geological processes like those phosphorescent minerals, reflections of car headlights, or other artificial sources. However, no definitive explanation has ever been widely agreed upon. And you'll see in some of the descriptions that I give you, unless this is some monster truck driving on the side of this mountain, there aren't roads that are easily accessible for like a Toyota Prius to get around. So you're telling me one of the scientific explanations is that the mountain farts? <laughs> yeah. It's letting them rip. Oh, Lord. Essentially. Okay. I, I would have loved to have been in the room when the scientists <laughs> proposed Come up that, that one. one. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> what they're, else do you find? They're also, I mean, you can't discount uh, outside of the scientific studies, the cultural impact that the Brown Mountain Lights have had. It's inspired folklore, obviously, mm -hmm. books, documentaries, and even a very famous song called The Lights of Brown Mountain. Ah. Yeah. Uh, they're often and a little bit of tourism. Oh, quite a bit of tourism, actually. Uh, because the Pisgah National Forest, I don't know if you looked at some pictures, but during my research, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. By the way, I drove through the Pisgah National Forest On your last year. <laughs> Yeah, I had no idea that, <laughs> that I was, you were in haunted America. What, really, and this just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I was only able to get to the Pisgah National Forest at night. <laughs> <laughs> had you only known? <laughs> had I only known? Oh man, yeah. So the Brown Mountain Lights, in terms of the cultural impact, it's most commonly featured in discussions about paranormal phenomena as well as ufologists, people that believe in extraterrestrial life. Uh, that's where most of these circles, that's where they talk about the Brown Mountain Lights. Uh, you'll see that it's kind of funny. They kind of have like a turf war over what it could be. The ghost hunters want it to Is be a ghost. Is it a ghost? Yeah. Is it an alien? <laughs> alien people are like, no, it's definitely an it alien. It could be an sure. alien ghost. Oh, my God. <laughs> You know, that hasn't been proposed. Let's go ahead hey, and propose it. We're proposing it today <laughs> You're here on the Ravensville Cauldron. The brown mountain lights are alien ghosts. <laughs> so right now, I'm going to go through the various theories and accounts 
that have been published, physical documents have been brought forth discussing the Brown Mountain Lights. This isn't just from your cousin Jethro that lives on the other side of the mountain, said it to your uncle twice removed. There's paper trails to these. Uh, Shout out to Jethro Bodine. (laughs) (laughs) So there were the early settler accounts that we kind of talked about earlier. Some of the earliest reports date back to the time of the first European settlers in the Brown Mountain region. These settlers reported seeing mysterious lights hovering over the mountain, and these stories were often passed through, usually as like little ghost stories to the children, I'm assuming. But they really documented the phenomenon before electricity was widely introduced into the area, which kind of poo-poos the idea that it was somebody's porch light on the side of the mountain. Again, these roads were big enough for maybe one vehicle and there was dense foliage all over them. So the idea that it was car headlights too, especially back then where Appalachia is a very poor region. It's not like everybody was just driving around in cars. Cars. Also, I understand the part about you know scaring kids with stories, but these were widespread stories. And these people didn't – they didn't mingle with each other a lot. Oh, yeah. They stayed in their isolated areas. One of the earliest reports that I saw was a report to a game warden in the area that there were these hunters that while they were deep in the middle of a hunt, I'm not sure for what animal, they reported seeing these lights hover around them probably about a quarter of a mile up the mountain. Now, what really worried them was that they noticed it at first and thought maybe it was a lantern of another hunter, which would be kind of odd. Why would a hunter have a lantern at night, especially on a full moon? You would basically chase away any animal you were trying to hunt. Then they claimed while they were staring at it, it then moved across the mountain by a couple of hundreds of yards. Obviously, knowing the terrain, even if that was some dude with a lantern, unless he was... 50 feet tall and was higher than most of these trees or flying, there's no way he could have crossed that amount of land without the light being interrupted as if it was passing through the trees. Yeah. So they reported it to the game warden. The game warden kind of did the whole like, okay, what's in your flask? You know, but there was a report for it mainly because they were concerned that maybe there was somebody doing something with fire that could cause uh, a wildfire in that area. So it was logged. Then we'll go ahead and skip to the 1940s military investigation. So again, during the World War, the Second World War, the U.S. military conducted an investigation into these lights, suspecting them to be enemy aircraft. The reason why they were really interested in it was that the nature of how the lights were moving through the area was a little bit too advanced for any of the aircraft that existed at the time, especially for reconnaissance aircraft, which they thought was what was being tested over Appalachia. They kind of theorized that the Axis powers were spying on us with small reconnaissance aircraft, and they were testing it out over Appalachia due to the remoteness before they tried it out over a major city or population center. Pilots that they sent to the area reported seeing the lights, but the military couldn't identify their source. So this is a little bit before we had super advanced radar technology. It existed, but not to the level that it is today. So you basically had these pilots doing huge flyovers at nighttime around Brown Mountain, 
and they could see the lights, they couldn't determine where they were coming from or how they were able to move the way that they were moving. And the lights were ultimately not deemed a threat, so I guess that's good. They didn't shoot any. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit ridiculous that they thought that they were reconnaissance planes when if you go back in history, those lights have been there. They had to know that. They had to know that there were reports all the way back about these lights. Yeah. So I don't think that the Axis powers had planes flying around back then. No. And I really, what I think, that was kind of like a cover-up story that the U.S. government used because, I mean, this is during the Second World War. We need to have a lot of faith in the government to not go around chasing ghosts in the woods. So maybe they said... Oh, yeah, it could be enemy aircraft, but maybe they were just curious, too, and thought, hey, let's send some pilots over there and check it out. Yeah, I mean, maybe it could be something that would help us. Oh, yeah. You know? Hey. Uh, then, if you skip forward about 20 years, there was a television broadcast by a local a news station in the area. A television station conducted a live broadcast from Brown Mountain in the hopes of capturing the lights on camera. They kind of set it up near... An observation area, I believe uh, in the document that I was reading, it was a fire watch. So it was a very remote building that they would send somebody to to look for wildfires as they occurred mm -hmm. so he could report it. So they set up a camera overlooking Brown Mountain as a general location. And apparently the lights did appear during the broadcasts, adding to the intrigue surrounding the phenomenon. Now, I actually did find the footage of it. Now, the name of the station was like your generic, like, NCLVT type of whatever, news station six. But what was really interesting is that the live broadcast starts, and after about 20 minutes, nothing really happens. But then you start to see on the horizon these flashes of light as they start moving around. What was interesting that in the broadcast, the people operating the camera and the reporter didn't even notice it. They were just kind of talking about it, kind of like, well, and there's supposed to be some reports of lights. Meanwhile, it's occurring, and people tuned in watching it, saw it live. I did actually end up finding some other footage that I'll bring up later from Appalachia State University as well. Then, 10 years later, in the 1970s, a police report was filed with mentions of the Brown Mountain Lights. So a police officer in the area, just driving around, bebopping, doing his thing, reported seeing the lights while on duty. The officer described the lights as moving erratically and emitting a soft glow. And when he got out of his police cruiser, reported hearing a, a humming noise on top of it. Hmm. <laughs> Other officers said residents in the area had also reported witnessing the lights. And while this officer was observing it, they actually got a couple of phone calls from some scared residents in the area saying, hey, you guys seeing this too? I find it interesting too in the police report that the officer claims that the orb of light that he was observing dancing around the mountain was significantly far away from him. But he said it sounded like the humming was right above his head. And it wasn't loud, but it was too... Just a low hum. Oh, yeah. It was just enough for him to be uneasy about it. He even turned off his police cruiser, thinking that it was maybe the engine causing it, but he still heard it. Well, that gives me goosebumps. I know, right? 
Uh, also, sprinkled amongst throughout the decades, you have plenty of tourist and local sightings. People driving through the area report that they saw an orb of light skip over uh, their car by about 50, 70 feet. And they would report it saying, I don't know who's flying a plane out here, but they need to stay a little bit higher off the road. Again, Pisgah National Forest, it's like a giant gorge. I mean, there's very, very steep cliff faces and drops on either side. The idea that a pilot could fly through that gorge and not wreck, especially at night, pretty low. I would say. Unless Red Bull was already testing out some of their like <laughs> trick flying videos back then. And that doesn't make Red any Bull, sense. Red Bull, not a sponsor. <laughs> Many visitors claimed to have seen the lights, describing them as floating, hovering, similar to the officer that we just talked about, or moving in unexplained patterns. The unexplained patterns thing is something that I wanted to kind of touch on because I believe that's what really drew the attention of the U.S. military. The way that these lights are moving, it wouldn't be possible with any aircraft, whether it be a helicopter or a single engine plane, to move in such a way. Some of the footage that I saw from well, Appalachian. Well, no, hold on. You mean wouldn't be with the technology that we understand currently? Correct. Okay. Some of the erratic movements that you see in some of the footage of the Brown Mountain Lights, there was a, I think it was some gentleman from the uh, Citadel Academy for the military. He kind of did the calculations. If that was a manned aircraft making the sorts of erratic stops and direction changes, the amount of G-force would kill the pilot immediately, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So I talked about it at the beginning as well, but there was a variety of colors and shapes. While most reports are of orbs floating around, the colors are a little bit different. So the most common reported ones are white or yellow. There's also been reports of red and blue, which, if given the choice, I definitely wouldn't want to see a red orb floating around. That seems really... Uh, that that <laughs> seems a little ominous, yes. <laughs> yeah. They're mainly described as those spherical orbs, but then other times they're said to form a line or kind of like a pyramid triangular shape, like a slice of pizza. Um, I I find it funny that with all of these uh, urban legends, it always goes back to things that associate with other things like pyramids and and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And part of me kind of chuckled when I read about the the debate on the shape of it. As a guy who has pretty bad astigmatism, if I saw one of these things floating out, I'd be like, that looks like a big old blob. There <laughs> goes a big blur moving across the sky. <laughs> so I'm going to go over some of the attempts that scientists and researchers have given explanations as to what could be causing the Brown Mountain Lights from a natural scientific uh, theory set. One that I thought was kind of interesting was the idea that it's bioluminescent organisms. So they kind of think that it could be a certain type of fungi or fungi or insects, kind of like lightning bugs, but on steroids, I'm assuming. These would have to be like, I don't know, like Volkswagen-sized lightning bugs. 
Um, I think we can rule that one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I think that that would be scarier. I don't want to see a, a lightning <laughs> bug that big. Yeah. Uh, the, I don't have a mason jar big enough to put that in. Oh, God, no. So maybe it's like a collective, like a school of them all just working in tandem. I don't know. Yeah, that one seemed a little... And again, the other idea that it's a mushroom or something. How big is the mushroom? That's causing it to be seen. And why can't we find these mushrooms? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the other theory given by some geologists in the area is that it could be some mineral phosphorescence. So they suggested that the minerals in the rocks of Brown Mountain may emit phosphorescent light, creating a mysterious glow. I think that that's kind of a lame explanation. I don't think that it's possible. I, well, I'm not going to say it's not possible because we do have minerals and organic compounds that do emit bioluminescence or not bioluminescence, just luminescence. Uh, but, I, you know, they would, they're scientists. Yeah, exactly. They would be able to go, that right there is causing it. Oh, yeah. This right here, we can prove it here. Well, let me show you. And even if it was, let's let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it was a large enough boulder that emitted this phosphorescent light that could be seen from a mile away. Did somebody knock the boulder from the back and then it starts rolling down the mountain? And then does the boulder just have the ability to pivot like Kobe in the paint, change direction by 90 degrees and start rolling back up the mountain? Well, and I think we also have to remember most of these are seen in the sky. Exactly. I mean, are there giants tossing the yeah, boulder? <laughs> lobbing them up. I know we're seem a little um, comical today, but some of these theories are just laughable. Sounds like I came up with them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, it's a giant mushroom rock creature. There was another one that I thought was kind of interesting. So it's the, and you're going to have to forgive me on the pronunciation, the piezoelectric effects. Piezoelectric. Thank you. So the common term for this is ball lightning. The theory proposes that certain minerals in the mountain, when subject to stress or pressure, could generate electrical charges and produce light. While they're a known phenomenon that we can observe in nature, it's unclear whether they could account for the observed lights. There's also with the ball lightning theory, the idea that during really heavy storms, the electrical charge the mismatch in the atmosphere could cause ball lightning. Ball lightning is a real thing that we have observed, but the accounts of this happening all throughout the year during all different seasons kind of shoots that one down too. Yeah. I also think that the piezoelectric effect is kind of thrown out the window here because uh, you have to have some kind of generator for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and unless we have a mad scientist home based in, the Brown Mountain. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, that that's Carolina. very logical. <laughs> uh, another proposed theory by some scientists was the combustion of gases. They kind of suggested, hey, maybe there's some flammable gases emitted from the ground, such as methane, that could ignite spontaneously and produce the lights. Again, with the amount of different accounts of the sizes, the shapes, the different colors, methane only burns at one specific type of color. It doesn't account for the other types. Right. So mountains fart, but uh, <laughs> let's let's go back to the previous one uh, where they were talking about ball lightning. The atmospheric conditions have to be right. And with ball lightning, typically it's a storm. Exactly. And most of these accounts aren't happening during a storm. No. Or 
uh, pre or post storm either. Exactly. I mean, take the example of the hunters earlier making a report to the game warden. You would not be hunting if it was, you know, pouring rain left and right. It would have to be a clear enough night that it was a good night to go hunt. So that kind of shuts that one down too. Also, if it was the combustion of methane, wouldn't there be evidence of fires everywhere? I, I would believe so. And I doubt that, I mean, if you think about um, some of those YouTube science shows where they're lighting methane on fire, it, it's a direct funnel or a column of gas, not a ball. Exactly. Um, and if if you did, if you were able to perhaps fill a balloon with methane, it's gone in seconds. Exactly. And these things hover and stay around and move around. So yeah, exactly. I think we could throw that one out the window too. Uh huh. The other one that seems to have the most widely accepted explanation from a scientific point is the idea that it's reflections of car headlights in the area. Again. Given the report from that one gentleman from the Citadel talking about how if this was a manned vehicle, be it flying aircraft or on the ground, the way that it changes direction so abruptly and the speed at which some of them have been recorded is going, it would break the neck of anybody piloting it or yeah. deriving it. Yeah, I get that. I also have to go back to the earlier you know, accounts of this, and we didn't have cars in this area. Yeah. Uh, well, we had cars, but we didn't have them like we do today. Oh, yeah. And, and so in the areas that these things are being reported, they're not that kind of road system there. No. And the cars that would have been available at the time of the first early reports of the Brown Mountain Lights, they'd be Model Ts and yeah. similar vehicles. They're not turning on a dime. Right. They're certainly not high speed. And besides, a lot of people that do see the Brown Mountain Lights say, I've seen a reflection or two in my life. That's not what I'm looking at. Right. The last one that I thought was a little bit interesting uh, from a scientific point was the idea that it was a temperature inversion. So apparently in some atmospheric conditions, temperature inversions can occur and they trap light, creating optical illusions. So this theory that was proposed by some scientists in the area suggests that the temperature inversions could be responsible for the appearance of light that seemed to float above the horizon. However, critics argue that this does not explain all of the observed characteristics of these lights. Right. So I think that's the problem with all of these natural occurring theories is that none of it none of the theories can explain away all of the details about the Brown Mountain Lights. Exactly. And I understand that mm, what the scientists were trying to do was offer up potential explanations. But if you notice something about all of them, they get one aspect of what could be causing some of the characteristics of the Brown yeah. Mountain Lights, but they don't account for what they're doing in their entirety. Right. And let's be clear. Uh, here at the Ravensville Cauldron podcast, we totally believe in science. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> we we are and Jacob's a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but um we do believe in science. So let's just be real clear about that. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> the explanations that I did a deep dive in are the extraterrestrial or the paranormal explanations for the nature of these lights. So obviously, given the mysterious nature of the lights, a lot of people 
attribute them to something supernatural. However, this perspective lacks a lot of general consensus amongst the ghost hunters and the UFO hunters. I'll let you decide what you think it is. But one thing that this ended up sending me down a rabbit hole on was the correlation between spheres of light and ghosts that are often rooted in paranormal folklore. So many ghost stories and paranormal encounters, witnesses describe seeing or capturing images of orbs or spheres of light, which are believed to be, by some, the manifestations of spirits or ghosts. And this is actually something that I can attribute to. My family growing up, very superstitious, whenever we would see an orb float by or like get caught in a ray of light. Or see one in a picture. Or see one in a picture, especially any pictures where it's a family gathering and there's an orb in the back. My aunts, my mother would always say, there's your dad. There's your grandpa. There's your cousin Ruel. They're here. They wanted to be in the photo too. Yeah. And those photos, even though objectively the living members of the family, maybe it wasn't our best photograph, but because my family believes that it was a spirit of a loved one coming to visit, they hang those up in the house. And it only takes like five minutes of you being in their house for them to start breaking out the baby pictures and everything. And just as casually as saying, yeah, this is when we lived in Las Vegas. Also, if you look in the background, that's your, uh, that's your uncle Ruel that passed on. He's there. You know, and they just keep going. Like, anyway, and here we are in Tacoma. It's just normal. Oh, yeah. Just, just normal, part of the normal, stuff. normal. I dig that. So, with the dust and particles, orbs captured in photographs or seen with naked eye can often be attributed to certain particles. I don't really think that that holds too much weight for the brown mountain lights. This is a large open area in a national forest. Yeah. There can't be a large enough, I Particle. mean, mega dust bunny. floating through the air, capturing the moonlight that would then account for it. Also, I don't know what the general speed of a dust bunny that size would be floating through the air, but it probably wouldn't be as quick as these lights. I I think you're correct there. And one of the things that I I will mention is that we've had kind of a a movement in the paranormal and uh, ghost realm back in the early... 1900s and and late 1800s you know it was all about ectoplasm and yeah. and all of that and then uh sometime in the 70s somewhere around there we started talking about orbs yeah you know uh it may have been a little bit more in the 80s but it was in that time frame we started talking about orbs more yeah and i think the orbs are an interesting theory. So I'll touch on later about what, if it is paranormal, these are orbs of spirits in the mountains. Whose spirits are they? The last little bit of the supernatural thing, the one that I like a lot, honestly, is the idea that these are extraterrestrial aircraft. Hmm. Now, a lot of the reports we have of extraterrestrial aircraft I'm not sure when any of you are listening to this episode, but last year there was a huge groundswell of UFO. That would be 2023. Exactly. Of the U.S. government basically declassifying a bunch of information on UFOs, including footage and pictures and whatnot like that. A lot of the way that the orbs and a lot of UFO found footage and documentation 
kind of coincides with the way that these brown mountain lights move. I, I find I can pretty dig that. interesting. Yeah. So, let's talk about the UFOs. <laughs> the UFOs and the alien spacecraft theory. Some believe that the certain orbs of light surrounding Brown Mountain are actually unidentified flying objects, vehicles, or spacecraft of an extraterrestrial origin. <laughs> UFO enthusiasts flock to the area every single year and argue that these lights could be advanced technology from other civilizations exploring the Earth. Or? Or? Or it could be plasma entities so these ufo researchers propose that the orbs of light are not actually vehicles that the extraterrestrials are traveling in they are in fact the extraterrestrials themselves they believe them to be of a different state of matter so plasma or just pure energy beings and these entities according to this theory could be manifestations of some extraterrestrial intelligence or form of non-physical life using some sort of Bluetooth capability to explore the area remotely. Kind of like an observation type of thing. Hmm. The other theory proposed by the UFO experts is that this phenomenon could be explained by aircraft or devices from an otherworldly origin, such as like a probe or surveillance drone type of thing. They believe that they were developed by some sort of extraterrestrial civilization to monitor the Earth and its inhabitants, and that their devices may be equipped with sensors or cameras to collect information of the area. This would also explain why there are multiple accounts of orbs as UFOs being reported all over the country and the world that they are sending these surveillance devices to various regions of the United States to get a better picture of the entire country or the layout of the natural landscape as well. So essentially they're high-tech drones. Exactly. Which I will say that if the Brown Mountain Light phenomenon occurred starting around 2010 – I think everybody would have just assumed it's some teenager with a drone and a flashlight tied to yeah. it, flying it around. But again, these reports started in 1906. I don't think drones were around back then. No, not, not in our world. This is a really fun theory that these UFO people have proposed. That these Brown Mountain Lights are actually transportation portals. So I will admit, this is I, it took a little bit of a deep dive. This is more on the fringer... Okay. Uh, more on the fringe of their theories. <laughs> I'm I'm very interested in portals right now. I'm I'm uh, doing some writing in our other podcast about portals right now. So I'm very interested in what you have to say. Oh, wonderful! Tie in the brown mountain lights, man. So the orbs of light are suggested to be portals or gateways used by extraterrestrial beings for transportation. That classic wormhole theory you see in sci-fi. They believe that in some far reach of the galaxy that this wormhole spits out over Brown Mountain for whatever reason. So they travel here and we get light. And when they return, we probably get lights too. Exactly. Hmm. As they're, I guess, using the portal. The portal. Yeah. 
That would also kind of explain why there's so many sightings of these floating orbs all over the region. They're kind of like bullet train stops for the aliens. At least that's what they propose. Okay. And then the last one is that these plasma entities are just really interdimensional beings. So there are a prevailing school of theories around this that propose that the orbs of light are manifestations of beings from alternate dimensions or parallel universes, and that the interdimensional beings might visit or interact with Earth for purposes that are unknown to us, but there could be a significant reason as to why the only way we can perceive them in our dimension or our reality is just pure light, pure energy. And if they are from a different dimension, they don't adhere to the laws of nature here. Causing yeah. their ability to float and change direction. I get that. But here again, we're seeing these in the sky. We don't see them walking around on the street or floating around in the street. These are in the sky. So they're hovering, I guess, to... I don't know. I don't know either. I don't want to know, really. <laughs> so I will document just a quick little timeline of different... Stories in the area that get attributed to the Brown Mountain Lights to try to explain them. And it'll range from your typical ghost stories to uh, extraterrestrial life. But the constant pushback that you'll see when you do research for the Brown Mountain Lights is that, again, it's just lights on somebody's porch. It's lights on somebody's Jeep Grand Cherokee driving through the woods (laughs) or something stupid. But there was a lot of initial claims that were insinuating that there could be something supernatural to be the cause behind the brown mount lights. The first publication of a claim that the lights were in any way referenced by Native American culture was an article in the Asheville Citizen in 1938. It basically made the claim that the orbs of light that you see were indigenous people that were wrongfully treated, obviously, and that maybe they died while fighting after being forced onto the Trail of Tears, and that their spirits now haunt the Pisgah National Forest as a result. And that was published in 1938 in the Asheville Citizen, which I find really interesting. Experts on historical Native American traditions state that this is also a myth that was invented by the white settlers to justify their own beliefs in the lights. Although some of the native tribes in the area openly discuss that their spirits protect the forest. So while there is a little bit of a, you guys are just blaming Native American spirits to come up with an explanation for the lights, the Native Americans that they speak to also go, well, it could be. I mean, we do have our ancestors all over this place, obviously. There also was a new variant of an older ghost story that kind of got lumped into the Brown Mountain Lights. And it was a ghost story about a woman and a baby that were murdered in the Jonas Ridge community. And it became the first published ghost story to incorporate the lights. And that was published in 1936. So two years before the Asheville Citizen published their article. Basically, it stated that the orbs of light are the maligned spirits of that woman and her baby that then haunt the mountain in which they were killed on. So. You'll see after 1936 with that published ghost story tie-in that ghosts are now going to start being 
primarily attributed with the Brown Mountain Lights. Obviously, a bunch of spirits from the Revolutionary War are troops moving through the mountains as they're setting up camp and maybe during a battle or two that happened. Uh, published in 1982 was a story that was linking the lights to Civil War ghosts. And it was first seen roughly around uh, 2012 on the internet. It was published in some sort of article for ghost hunters back in 1982 and then it resurfaced in 2012. Again, the idea being behind spirits that passed untimely in great distress, their spirits are still forced to wander the area that they died in. So those were the ghost explanation tie-ins for the Brown Mountain Lights. But in 1965, this is when the UFO movement really started to pick it up and run away with it. There was a gentleman by the name of Ralph Lael who used to display what he claimed was a mummified alien in his rock shop. He self-published a book detailing his claimed extraterrestrial encounters on Brown Mountain and his trip with the aliens to their home planet of Venus. So I ended up looking into this guy's claim. He claims while he was hunting for geodes and Native American arrowheads and stuff like that, that he stumbled upon a weird humanoid effigy in the rocks. It clearly was not a mummified human being that had calcified. He described it as an entity of pure energy that once it stopped existing, it gathered the materials around it, kind of like it imploded and then caused a mummification. Now, he claims in his account that as he was moving around with this thing, that it disturbed, I guess it's colleagues or brethren, and that they ended up abducting him in the middle of the night and taking him all the way to their home planet of Venus. Of Venus. And probed it. Probably. He may have left that part out. Okay. But we can assume. <laughs> and he gives a huge account of what he saw on Venus and, and that the uh, entities that he was interacting with looked like fleshed out versions of the mummified rock effigy that he had found and displayed in the shop. If you, if you ever want to, you can actually look up pictures of this rock-like effigy. Um, it looks basically exactly how he described it. It's got large head, long slits for eyes, short stubby body. Kind of creepy looking, not going to lie. If I was walking into a rock shop to be like, you got any cool rose quartz or anything? And I just saw that thing chilling, I'd probably just be like, all right, man, have a good day. And I'll just walk out. Of course you would. At some point after uh, Mr. Ralph publishes this account of being abducted by aliens after finding the remains of one of them, that's when you really start to see a transition take place between the idea that this was caused by paranormal spirits and it almost completely changes into extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial activity. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. So that's where the original legend kind of stands now. It has more accounts that more align with like close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. The orbs start to take on more of a, they float directly above me. They shake my car. It makes all of my hair go up, up into the air like you're being abducted or anything like that. So uh, even though thousands of loggers were working in the Brown Mountain area during this entire period of time where people are still reporting to see them today, all of them, even though they don't communicate with each other, 
they all come to the same general description of what the lights can do, what they've been seen to do, and everybody generally reaches some consensus as to how they operate. And this is also where a bunch of UFO hunters start flooding into the area to try to get to the bottom of this. So you have a lot of people taking photographs, bringing telescopes. There was one guy that was reported to have said that he observed these floating orbs of light over an area in Kentucky, and they shot off in a certain direction. And wouldn't you know it, when he did it on a map, guess where they were heading towards? Brown Mountain. Exactly. So he kind of believes that Brown Mountain is these other areas that exist on the you know, countryside or whatnot that are used as kind of like a beacon or like a bus stop for these people or these beings, I should say. So all this to be said with the UFO hunters, the ghost hunters, both combined, I think it's safe to say that the lights are a cultural phenomenon. It's evolved over time to suit the many different theories that people have, whether it's ghosts, whether it's UFOs, whether it's mountains farting or something silly like that. But the changing expectations of the people who participate in this are also helping build the culture of mystery in Appalachia. So, Jacob, um, after doing all this research, what's your final determination about the Brown Mountain Lights? So... I was kind of one foot in, one foot out. When I initially was doing the research, some of the first things that came up were, it was car headlights. And I went, okay, yeah. And I just stopped doing any sort of mental work. And I said to myself, yeah, 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 it's just car headlights. But the more digging into it that I did, the more I realized it definitely could not have been car headlights. I also ended up finding a very interesting study that Appalachia State University conducted within the last like 15, 20 years, I think it was 2012, where they set up a camera overlooking Brown Mountain and collected 1,600 hours of footage. And in the footage, you can see the Brown Mountain lights occurring. Now, if it was car headlights, and I watched the footage, if it was car headlights, would they not be appearing in the same areas every single time? But they're not. So with App State University, the U.S. government, plus the thousands of people who have reported to see the lights, they all still can't reach some collective agreement on what the lights are or what's causing them. The ghost hunters claim that it's supernatural. The UFO hunters want to claim that it's extraterrestrial. For all I know, it's an alien's ghost or something. <laughs> well, family, as we conclude today's episode of Jacob's Haunting, we leave you with the enigma that is the Brown Mountain Lights. These mysterious lights, seen sporadically for years near Brown Mountain in North Carolina, continue to captivate our imaginations. They remind us that despite our advancement in technology and understanding of the world, there are still mysteries out there waiting to be solved. So the next time you find yourself in Pisgah National Forest, take a moment to gaze at Brown Mountain. And who knows? you might just catch a glimpse of those elusive lights. But until then, keep your curiosity alive like me and your sense of wonder ignited. Remember, the world is full of magic and wonder just waiting for us to explore. I'm Ed Bolden-Greer. And I'm Jacob Garner. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. 
If you like what you've heard, make sure you join us next week as we journey into the mysterious world of the moon-eyed people of Appalachia. Now, family, you adults have a few chores to do. If you haven't already, go on over to ravensvale.com and see about doing your chores on social media. Follow us on all the social media platforms that we've made available just for you guys. And if you haven't already, you can find the Ravensvale podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for Ravensvale podcast and make sure you hit the follow button to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And tell your friends about us, won't you? So until next time, family, see See you you soon. soon. The Cauldron is a production of Small Raven Media. Today's episode was hosted by Ed Bolden Greer with guest co-host Jacob A. Garner. Audio engineering and sound design by Nick Devan at Nikki D Sound. Copyrighted 2023. Small Raven Media. All rights reserved. <laughs>